Welcome to King's Cross Church. We last saw one another, we last met on Good Friday, and that's not the end of the story. Right there is Sunday, and He is risen, and that's what we're celebrating today. It's incredible news. In fact, it's really all we talk about as a church. We believe that this gospel, that Christ died for our sins, and that He was raised on the third day, is news that is so incredible, so wonderful, that it actually transforms us from the inside out. And so we're excited to celebrate the resurrection with you this morning. If you uh, do not have our order of worship, that's available on our website, kingscrossokc.com. You'll scroll down just a bit and you'll see a worship heading and you can click on a link that will take you to uh, the, the liturgy for this morning. So again, we're thankful that you're here, and we're excited to worship with you. Let's pray together. Our Father, we give you thanks that you have overcome the grave, that death, the great enemy, has been put to death by your power. And we thank you that that resurrection power is on the loose in this world. It's at work within us. We ask that you would, by your Spirit, unite us, even though we're separated, And that you would uh, impress upon us ever deeper the truth of our risen Lord. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen. Thank you guys for leading us this morning. Uh, A week ago on 60 Minutes, Leslie Stahl, one of the 60 Minutes correspondents, uh, was interviewing Aaron Ulster, a, a, a Polish man, a Polish-Jewish person, who at the time of the Holocaust was nine years old. And he, uh, his, his family was being boarded on a train bound for a concentration camp. And as that's happening, his father yells to his son, Aaron, run, run. And so Aaron, this little nine-year-old boy, just starts running. And he runs, and he runs, and he finally stumbles upon a a country home. An older couple lives there. It's a couple that he knows because this couple would regularly come to his father's butcher shop. And he asks to be let in. And at first they don't let him in, and then he cries, and they have pity on him, and they let him in uh, to stay in their attic. And he's there for two years, this nine-year-old boy, all alone in this attic. Two years. We've been in quarantine for now about a month, and we can walk about in our houses, we can walk in our neighborhoods, we can drive to get necessities. We have our families, we have friends that we can talk to and communicate with. Can you imagine being a nine-year-old boy stuck in that attic? And Leslie asked, what, what did, how did you pass the time? And he said what his favorite thing to do was to catch flies. He would break off their wings so that they wouldn't fly away. So that they would, they would keep him company. He made up stories in his head. He said it was, it was awful. And now here's the thing about this interview. Aaron died two years ago. And Leslie's having this interview with him, and she's doing it because of technology. Before his death, there's a program where they're recording 
the, the testimonies of these Holocaust survivors. For a full week, interviewers asked him every question they could think of. Nine to five, five days. And then you had another room full of people in a computer lab typing every conceivable variation of all of those questions. And they've tied it all up to his responses so that now you can have a conversation with Aaron Ulster as sort of a three-dimensional image of him responding to them. And at the end of the interview, uh, the interviewer, Stahl, says something very profound. She says, these were people that were supposed to have died 70 years ago, but they didn't. They, they slipped through the cracks and they will now live on forever. Sort of, right? Not really. They're, they're, they themselves are not alive any longer. Their family, it doesn't feel to their families as though they're alive. But this story highlights the extent to which we'll go in order to help things, people, individuals live on. Like we want everlasting life. Death is an invader. It is not natural at all. If you've been around someone in the last days or weeks of their lives, we fight death. I've seen 90-year-olds put up incredible fights to resist the, the, the coming of death. It's an invader. And as we just recited together, a central tenet of the Christian faith is our belief in the resurrection of the dead. And the longer we live and the more loved ones that pass on, the more this truth of the future resurrection um, becomes, a, becomes a joy, becomes something that we want to bank our lives upon. So in order to consider it this morning, we're going to look at Mark's gospel, chapter 16, verses 1 through 8, and you may have read this already, but we're going to read it again. Mark chapter 16, uh, beginning at verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought bought spices so that they might go and anoint him, Jesus. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone. For they were afraid. This is God's word. Let's pray as we jump into this text. Our Father, we thank you for the good news of Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection, and the hope that it brings us. We pray that your spirit would impress, again, impress these truths upon our hearts this morning as your word is opened, considered, 
We believe it's active, it's alive, and uh, it's on the move. And so we pray that your spirit would, would, would do that, would, would work this, these things out in our hearts, in our families, in our neighborhoods. We pray these things in the name of the risen Lord Jesus. Amen. So on this Easter morning from this text, I want us to consider three things. The proof of the resurrection, the power of the resurrection, and the grace of the risen Lord. So first let's consider the proof of the resurrection. Verse 1. So the Sabbath is passed and three women, the two Marys and Salome, they buy spices late Saturday night after dark so that the next morning they can go and anoint him. And, and they, they go um, early in the morning, not to embalm him, but to anoint him. See, he was placed in a tomb, and in the ancient world, the tomb would be most likely like dug out of, the, out of the side of a hill or a cave, and it would be a family tomb. And there would be a stone slab in that tomb that, that the deceased would be placed upon, and as their body decayed, when that process was complete, their bones would then be placed in the tomb with the rest of the family's bones. And, and then the stone slab would be empty for the next family member that passed. And so they're going, this gesture of, of anointing him is a gesture of love and care. And in their haste and distress, they're walking and they realize, we didn't think through something really important. How are we going to get this tomb rolled away? And then they arrive, and guess what? The tomb is rolled away, and the tomb is empty. So where's the proof? Where's the proof of the resurrection? Um, you know, it's tempting for us to kind of think, well, you know, these people, of course they believed in the resurrection. They were naive ancient people. You know, they believed the world is flat. They they thought that bleedings would help them with sickness. They didn't think they needed to wash their hands when it came to sickness. Like they're, they're like, you know, they're, they're just a few notches above the ape. They're not very intelligent. But the reality, C.S. Lewis calls that chronological snobbery. Not only is it not true, but it relativizes everything that you're saying. Because in 300 years, we're going to be the stupid, barely above apes people. So, and actually, them more than us even... They were more acquainted with death than we are. I eat chicken like three to five times a week. And I don't know that I've ever seen a dead chicken or have never killed one. They were acquainted with death and they understood that once something dies, it doesn't come back. And so Mark and the gospel writers account for the unbelievable nature of this claim of resurrection and throughout Mark's gospel, he has not mentioned names uh, very rarely, unless he is wanting to substantiate the claim that he's making. So, for example, like in a research paper, if you make some claim, the research paper is strengthened by a footnote that, that, that cites your source. And this is what Mark is doing. He's citing his source. He's, he's giving names. And he's saying, look, if you don't believe that this happened, you got Mary Magdalene, you got Mary, the other Mary, you've got Salome, that you can go consult or their families, and they can verify that this happened. Paul in, in the letter to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says that Jesus uh, was raised from the dead and he appeared to more than 500 people. And he, and he says, and most of those are still alive. 
Like, if you don't, if you don't believe in this resurrection, go find these people. They're around. They saw the risen Lord. And even though you live in Corinth, and those people are probably way back in Palestine, that's a journey worth making. Like, this news is so incredible. It is worth your time to travel and interview these folks to see what they saw. See, uh, 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 Tim Keller, he, um, I've, I've heard him say, you know, imagine that you get a letter in the mail and it comes on official sort of lawyer, stationery, uh, fancy envelope. And inside it says that a, a deceased relative who you don't know has died and they want to, your inheritance is a million dollars from them. Your first thought is probably, this news is too good to be true. It's not credible. Like we get scams all the time, right? But wouldn't you at least investigate a bit to make sure that it wasn't a scam? Wouldn't you do a Google search to look up that law firm? Maybe even reach out to them by phone and just see how much more so with this claim of the resurrection it is incredible news. And, 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 and Mark here is saying, look, you got you to interview these ladies. Now, also, another proof of the resurrection from this text here is the fact that Mark mentions that they are women. Right? Mark is not making this stuff up. Why? Because, because if you were making this up, you would never say that it was women that first approached the tomb. Not in this day, day and age, right? At this point in history, and this is going to sound harsh and cruel and, you know, offensive, but, but it's true. In the first century, the testimony of women had zero value. Zero value. Even 200 years after this moment, Celsus, a pagan, is jabbing at Origen and saying, look, you believe in this religion that's built on the testimony of gossipy, flighty women. Like, it was a problem. So, so they would not have written it in that way unless it actually happened that way. What was a liability to the early church is now a proof for the plausibility of the resurrection. But Mark does describe it this way because it really happened. Right? And it's just like God to take those on the margins and make them first to learn of, of a mystery of the universe, that a resurrected world order is in the works, and the first fruits of that order are, is already on the loose. Jesus is, is out of the tomb. And that's what God does, right? He takes the have-nots of the world and he privileges them and he makes them haves. And that's what he's done with these, these women. He's been doing it since the book of Exodus. You know, in, the, in chapter 1 of the book of Exodus, uh, the most powerful man in the world is left unnamed, right? He's just the king of, of Egypt. We don't know which pharaoh it is. And yet, the names in that first chapter of Shifra and Pua are mentioned. These humble Hebrew midwives. Because in God's economy, those are the, those, these are the people that matter. The, the marginalized. And there's a lot of other proofs for this resurrection. We could look at the boldness of his followers. 
his followers went from denying and hiding to boldly proclaiming at the risk of their lives this message of Christ crucified and Christ risen. And most of them died a horrible death as a result of that. And not only that, but what about the transformation of, of, of the Western world as a result of Christianity? God takes a ragtag group of uneducated fishermen and followers, and, and they spread this message of gospel across the world, and it eventually supplants Greek philosophy in all of its sophistication. A French philosopher who's not a Christian, his name is Luc Ferry, has said, you know, he's posed the question, how did Christianity replace Greek philosophy as the dominant way of thinking in, in, in the West? And his answer was, again, not a Christian, the resurrection. Christianity had a way of dealing with this great enemy of death. So that's a bit on the proof. Now let's look at point number two, the power of the resurrection. The power of it. Look at verse 4. In looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. All right, this is this angelic being, right? And, and they are filled with fear. Every time a messenger of the Lord shows up, you know what happens to people? They get filled with fear. And, and, um, and it's proper, right? Beaver told Lucy in the Chronicles of Narnia, she asked about Aslan, and she said, is he safe? He said, no, he's not safe, but he is good. And it applies to God. He's not safe. And this is why when, when, when a messenger of the Lord, or the Lord himself shows up, there is fear that strikes the individuals. And always the angel says, don't be af- because you're afraid, don't be afraid. Don't be, don't be alarmed, verse 6. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He's risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him? So where's his power? Well, obviously the resurrection. But, but look at this verb here, seek. You, you seek, you, you look for, it could be translated, you look for uh, Jesus. And the verb there is zetain. It's a, it's a Greek word that's only used 10 times in Mark's gospel. Every time it's used, it has a negative connotation. For example, in chapter 1, verse 37, the disciples come up to Jesus and they say, Jesus, everyone is looking for you. Everyone is zetining you. They're seeking you. And, and, and the tone is this. Look, Jesus, you got crowds of people. You got to go, go do some kind of miracle or something. The people are demanding a show. Get out there and perform. And most of the time that this verb is used, it's used in reference to the religious leaders and authorities seeking, zetining, to kill him. They want to kill him. They want to contain him. They want to control him. But here's the point of the angel's message. You can't stop him. Even when he's dead in his grave... He can't be contained. The women expected to find him laying there, a dead corpse that they could then kind of tend to and take care of. But the living God doesn't stay put in a tomb. You can't stop him. All the religious powers of the Jews couldn't stop him. The political powers of Rome could not stop him. 
the science and the precision of professional executioners could not stop him. The mocking of the crowds couldn't stop him, right? The weight of the stone that, that uh, covered the tomb could not stop him. The, the diligence of the guards that were, that were standing guard, they couldn't stop him. You, the, the patterns of this old world cannot contain the king of the world to come. We have made a big deal out of a Charles Spurgeon quote, you know, from our first meetings over a year ago. We've cited this quote from Spurgeon, and it's worth mentioning again at length, right? Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist pastor uh, in London in the late 19th century, was preaching on Psalm, and he, and he said this, and so picture a lion at a zoo in London, and this is what he says, see you that lion, right? Look, look at that lion. They have caged him for his preservation. Shut him up behind iron bars to secure him from his foes. See how a band of armed men have gathered together to protect the lion? What a clatter they make with their swords and spears. These mighty men are intent upon defending a lion. O fools and slow of heart, open that door. Let the Lord of the forest come forth free. Who will dare to encounter him? What does he want with your guardian care? Let the pure gospel go forth in all its lion-like majesty, and it will soon clear its own way and ease itself of its adversaries. Jesus doesn't need to be defended. He just needs to be let out of his, his cage, right? You, 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 and he does, we don't even let him out. You can't contain God. You can't put God in a box or a tomb. The power of the resurrection turns a cold, dank tomb into a site of electric, supernatural power as Jesus explodes forth from the tomb. And not only is he alive and risen, but he is a sign of what's to come for us all and for all of creation, right? All of us will experience a resurrection. All of creation will experience a resurrection. And here's something else. The promise of the resurrection is so powerful. It's not only going to break open tombs, but it has the power to recast all of history in a different light, right? That, that, that the victims of the Holocaust will all of a sudden, post-resurrection, see that event in a different light. That's what Paul says. That there is a glory to be revealed to us that makes the, the sufferings of this present world not even worth comparing to, right? And that's what that's, it happened in the case of Jesus, right? The moment, moment of, of greatest despair turns into, on Sunday, uh, the hope of the world. What looked like an incredible injustice, and indeed was really an injustice, turns out to be the justice of God on Sunday. And here's another thing. We talked about this when we studied Ephesians chapter 1. Resurrection power is at work in us. 
it's already raised us back to life, right? Ephesians 2, 4. We were dead in our sins, but God has made us alive. And He is continuing to renew us with this resurrection power. And it's pulsating throughout creation, throughout the universe. And one day it will explode upon the universe. He is risen. So finally, let's consider the grace of the risen Lord. What does the angel say in verse 7 to the, to the Marys and Salome? He says, go and tell disciples and Peter that he's, that he's pretty upset at them. Uh, especially you, Peter. You know, you, you denied me three times, Peter. In my moment of need, where were you? And look at you now. Fear, just hiding, trembling, fearful. It's pathetic. That's not what the angel says. Look, go and tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Do you see the grace of the risen Lord? Tell them, even Peter too, who's probably more fearful now that I'm alive than that I was dead, right? Because he abandoned me. He denied me. Tell him that I'm going before them that we have work to do. We've got news to proclaim, a kingdom to build, and, and they, you are going to lay the foundation. So let's get to work. I will continue to lead you. Do you see the grace that Jesus shows? He's not angry. He loves them. And he's not angry with you. He wants to extend his grace to you and set his love upon you. And it's not, it's not out of cold obligation. It's not like, well, you know, we did the whole cross thing. I guess we've got to love some people now. No, it's, 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 it's full of warmth. Um, he wants to take you in, adopt you as his own, forgive you, and adopt you as, as his children, and shower upon you the immeasurable kindness for all eternity. That's what he wants to do. And Mark's gospel ends on a strange note. Look at verse 8. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. They're afraid. It's not like, ooh, they're like awestruck fear took over them. No, it's like uh, tuck tail and run fear. That's, that's, what, that's what they're left with. So what do we make of this? It is so reasonable to believe in an empty tomb. But no matter how tightly we argue for an empty tomb, an empty tomb will not change us. It has to be an encounter with the risen Lord, an encounter with Jesus. And they've not had that yet. That's coming in, 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 in the story. When 15... Uh, about 15 years ago, 14 years ago, I guess, uh, we, my wife and I lived in England, and I was doing, um, doing schooling there, and I had a professor that was supervising my research, and I was interviewing Christians about this topic of, 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 of work, and my supervisor said, have you thought about interviewing John Stott? And I thought, well, <laughs> no, no, uh, John, so, so if you don't know who John Stott is, John Stott is to evangelical theology what Billy Graham is to evangelism. 
right? Just this enormous figure in the second half of the 20th century. And so I thought, well, no, I've not thought about that, but it sounds like a good idea. And so I wrote him a letter, and he wrote back, and a little few letters back and forth, and he says, come on, and that'd be great. And so we, Sarah and I, with our new baby, Cora, uh, just been born, we go to London, I, I go to his apartment, and I interview him. And um, the, the last question that I ask him is, what do you believe, now that we're in the 21st century, what do you believe is the greatest challenge facing Christians in the 21st century? And really without hesitation, he said, the exclusivity of Jesus. The exclusivity of Jesus. That is the idea that, the idea that Jesus is the only way to God. That no other way will do. And, you know, this is a, this is a doctrine, this is a belief that I even struggle with at times to intellectually get my head around. Um, but as I've thought about this, this, this doctrine, it's not based on any limit in God, say God's generosity towards sinners, but rather the exclusivity of Jesus is based on the unlimited, infinite excellence of Jesus, the God who was raised from the dead. Right? If, you, if, if you're raised from the dead, that's like, that's the ultimate mic drop. Right? You, whatever you say. Like, I'm following you. And even though I don't intellectually maybe understand everything that you say, how, how could I not follow you? You conquered death. And actually, once you get inside the Christian faith, all of these difficulties begin to sort of sort themselves out. I mean, think, think of it this way. Seen from another angle, the good news of Jesus Christ is the most inclusive of all news, right? The message of the gospel is do nothing. Do nothing. You just receive him. It's great. It was raining right when we got here. It's cleared up. Looks like it could be a nice day for a few more hours, and then we got a cold front blowing through. Um, but right now, the, the rain was coming down. And what did the ground do to receive the rain? Did it scream out, help us, we're thirsty? Did it lobby for the rain to come? No, it just, it just received it. And that is how God's grace hits us. We just receive it, right? We do nothing, it's grace. This grace of God takes Peter, who had just denied Jesus, and saves him and sends him out to proclaim his gospel. The grace of God takes Paul, who's actually killing Christ's bride, persecuting his church, and he, he, he turns him around, he saves him, and he sends him out to become the greatest missionary the world has ever seen. Every other religion, every other way is, is centered upon a set of practices or a philosophy or a system. But Christianity is in orbit around a news, right? The news that the work has already been done. What did Jesus say on the cross? It's finished. It's finished. And the resurrection is a resounding validation of the completion of his work on the cross. He grabs us as we're walking away from him. He pulls us out of hiding. It's so beautiful. It's grace, and it is uniquely Christian. C.S. Lewis said, you don't, you don't make this stuff up. Like, humans don't create this kind of religion. It's so different. Right? It's so out of this world. It's out of this world, but it won't be for long. Because 
another of the promises of Christ is that he is uniting all things. He is uniting heaven and earth. In fact, right now, because of the resurrection and the ascension and his seating at the right hand of God, the dirt of earth is on the throne of heaven. The, the unification of all things has already begun. He's resurrecting everything. He's making all things new, and it is an unstoppable force. Why would you resist that? Let's pray together. Our Father, we give you thanks for this good news. We need it. We're so forgetful when it comes to it. We need it to, to, to work its way deep into our hearts. And Paul, the prayer that we looked at as a, as a church body in Ephesians where he prays, he prays of all the things that he could pray for a persecuted church, he prays simply that they would know your work in their lives, your gospel in, in their lives, and that it would come, that it has to come by the Spirit. And so we pray that. We pray that your Spirit, even though we're separated and distant from one another, that your Spirit would... would um, impress upon us this good news of Jesus Christ. It's in the name of the risen Lord that we pray. Amen.